Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 554 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? Well, last week I mentioned that my, you know, my new favourite activity is antiquing. I love that word because it sounds a bit more posh than thrifting, which some people refer to it as. Um, Some people may consider what I do as thrifting, but I'm going to stick with antiquing, especially for books. My latest set of vintage books that I've picked up are a volume of four, and it's a set called The Practical Grocer. I fell in love with them when I saw them in a Red Cross shop. They're so quaint. It's a four-book manual and guide for the, the grocer, the provision merchant, and allied trades. And it's published in 1909 by the Gresham Publishing Company, so it's well over 100 years old. Uh, it looks like the sort of books that you had if you were setting up a grocery or provision store at the turn of the century. And it covers everything from how to set up your shop, uh, how to, um, uh, what you need for capital, how to receive and store stock, um, the art of salesmanship. Um, here's just a little extract from it. A good salesman, notice they say salesman, will always keep before his mind notice they say is the the all-important subject of profit, that breath of life to every shopkeeper. And with this in view, he must endeavour, where he has two similar lines, to give greater prominence to the one of the two that pays best. (laughs) By this, we do not mean that he must deliberately try to force a customer or that he must ever substitute another article for the one really ordered. So I just love the the um, the language in it, and I just love how it takes itself so seriously on um, how to set. And there's this there's so much instruction four volumes on how to set up your you know grocery store or your provision store or whatever. And I know I'm going to absolutely love reading it. Anyway, uh, let's move on to our writing tip this week. You'll often hear writers on this podcast and elsewhere talk about their writing buddies uh, or writing partners or their critique groups and so on. So you might be wondering, how do you find your own? Well, to be honest, finding someone who is a good writing partner can take time, just like any partner. You may need to join a few groups or attend a few events or talk to a few people before you find someone you can work well with. But you do have to start somewhere, right? So the first thing is look around your maybe your local area and see if there are any writing groups that are already established which you can join, which you can join, especially if you like that in-person kind of thing. Because, but you don't have to do it in person, right? I mean, you can look at book clubs, which is a great source of these things, uh, because there's often a few lurkers, writers lurking in uh, book clubs. You can also look online, of course, such as our So You Want to Be a Writer Facebook community and ask if anyone wants to swap manuscripts or writing on a regular basis. And of course, you can join a course like our Creative Writing Stage 1 or Novel Writing Essentials. And then you have this kind of instant writing group created especially for you and many of our graduates. I know some, I know many friend groups now who have met as a result of um, 
our courses, usually the longer courses, of course, where they get to know each other over a period of time. Now, we recently heard from on this on an episode of this podcast from Megan White, whose uh, novel is The Anatomy of Songs, and she actually um, found her writing partner through our graduate Facebook group. And they both went on and got published, which is absolutely fantastic. So yeah, make sure you, like I said, you've got to start somewhere, but look at different options. You, it may not, it's a bit like dating, right? You, you may not get the right person the first time, but um, you will eventually. Now let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of Normal Rules Don't Apply by Kate Atkinson. Award-winning writer Kate Atkinson is back with Normal Rules Don't Apply, a collection of short stories you don't want to miss. I have three copies to give away. Now here is the blurb. The first short story collection from Kate Atkinson in 20 years, Normal Rules Don't Apply is a dazzling array of 11 interconnected tales from the best-selling author of Shrines of Gaiety and Life After Life. In this first full collection since Not the End of the World, we meet a queen who makes a bargain she cannot keep, a secretary who watches over the life she has just left, a man whose luck changes when a horse speaks to him. With clockwork intricacy, inventiveness and sharp social observation, Kate Atkinson conjures a feast for the imagination, a constantly changing multiverse in which nothing is quite as it seems. All right, so I have three copies to give away to you guys. Entries close on the 28th of August. So just go to writercenter.com.au slash win and follow the instructions to enter and have a chance to win this book. That's writercenter.com.au slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I hope you are because this week's word of the week is Previse. That's P-R-E-V-I-S-E, Previse. This simply means to foresee or forewarn. So it comes from pre and vision. So you get Previse. So you could say maybe um, they could not have Prevised how successful the film would be. There you go. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Creative Nonfiction, is your essential guide to crafting a true story into a compelling, page-turning book. Creative nonfiction is one of the most popular genres in publishing right now, and it's clear to see why people love a good story. And if it's based on true events, they're even more invested in it. Perhaps you want to explore true crime, history, or literary journalism. Maybe you have a great idea for a memoir or armchair travel book. It doesn't matter what subject you're passionate about, this course provides you with a blueprint on everything you need to know, from how to structure your story and bring its real characters to life, to the kind of research you need to do and the techniques that will drive your narrative to a powerful climax. With over 10 hours of lessons and plenty of practical exercises to complete, you'll discover how to weave your true story into a truly great read. This powerful course removes the guesswork and breaks down the process step-by-step so you can approach your writing project with confidence. And because it's one of our online self-paced courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentercomau 
slash creative nonfiction. That's writercentre.com.au slash creative nonfiction. Today, I'm talking to Tim Booth. He was a motoring journalist who worked for Top Gear Australia magazine and then decided to retrain as a paramedic. He's now an intensive care paramedic who worked for six years in southwest Sydney, patching up the sickest, strangest and silliest of patients who called triple O for all manner of trauma and triviality. His brilliantly written memoir is called You Called an Ambulance for What? Strange, Serious and Silly Stories of Life as a Paramedic. Tim, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. Oh my God, I loved your book. I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. I devoured it and I have been telling all of my friends, not only that they should read the book, but they, but I've, you know, they're just great pub stories, right? So it's called, You Called an Ambulance for What? Correct. <laughs> and that's immediately intriguing. Just so, it, it, just for people who haven't got their copy yet, can you tell us what it's about? Yeah, for sure. So as the title suggests, it's uh, it's a book about being a paramedic, um, but not your typical sort of ambulance story or medical uh, memoir, which is uh, the large majority which are out there are quite serious. Um, this isn't a particularly serious book overall. It is, as you say, largely a collection of funny pub stories. Um, that was the idea, just to put together some of the silliest, most ridiculous call-outs um, I've attended as a paramedic um, over the past six or seven years. Um, but in doing that, sort of underlying it with a serious message um, that although these stories are quite funny, um, they're great to read, they're great to retell, there is a serious problem that there is um, more than 90% of our calls uh, actually are not emergencies um, after they've been triaged and attended to. Um, they're deemed as not emergencies. So this, this is a real problem, um, A, both for paramedics um, suffering burnout and exhaustion, and B, for the wider community that Ambulance resources are tied up, um, attending trivial, non-serious, sometimes downright ridiculous calls um, that that really shouldn't have an ambulance in the first place, um, but are, which is putting the community at risk. Um, because unfortunately, emergencies don't don't book in a time to happen; they they happen randomly, um, and so we need to be available for them. So that was kind of the angle I was going for. Um, a light-hearted, entertaining read of some of the some of the silliest and randomest jobs I've attended, but with an underlying serious message there as well. Yes, there's, so there's. It's not only a light-hearted and entertaining read, uh, but it does have a serious message. The number of people I have spoken to now say, "Did you know <laughs> about this little blue card that people have, which entitles them to an unlimited number of ambulance visits where they don't have to pay?" I, I, I mean, it was very eye-opening. But also, even though you have a series of funny stories which are kind of episodic in nature, there is an overall narrative arc because it starts on your first day as a trainee paramedic or first day on the job. And um, there, there is effectively a three-act structure kind of mm -hmm. thing um, and, and a climax and, 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 and a resolution. So, I mean, that, that was incredibly well done. But tell me, why did you want to write the book in the first place? I think, as you say, there is a, a three-act structure starting out as me as a trainee paramedic um, in Macquarie Fields in southwest Sydney, then becoming a qualified paramedic and then becoming an intensive care paramedic. And when I started, um, as outlined in the book, as a trainee paramedic on my very first shift, um, I attend someone who's got a blocked nose, 
Um, it's not in the book, but I attended someone who had a toothache and I caught gastroenteritis on my first shift. So had a horrible introduction um, in my very first Saturday night as a, as a little junior trainee paramedic in Macquarie Fields, um, which sort of continued. That was, that was um, the catalyst for my journey as a paramedic. I, I found myself plagued with these trivial jobs over the course of then becoming qualified and then becoming the highest level paramedic, which is intensive care, um, which in theory uh, are meant to be reserved for the most critical of emergencies. Um, but I just happened to become an intensive care paramedic right around the time that COVID-19 happened in Australia. So that was obviously the all-time busiest, um, most exhausting time for anyone as a paramedic. Um, so the vast majority of our calls were people with very minor sort of COVID flu-like symptoms. Um, so I found that, yeah, even, even achieving the level of intensive care paramedic didn't help me elude um, the trivial and the ridiculous calls. So that really motivated me to, to try and get this message out there um, because it does say on the back of every ambulance, it says save triple O for saving lives. There's, there's always media campaigns about that, um, but it seems that no one's listening. No one's paying attention. So I thought um, the best way to help people understand the message and, and the effect that it's having on us as paramedics is to sort of show the human perspective of paramedics. Um, you know, we've got the same, the same fears, the same anxieties, the same ups and downs as every normal person. We're, we're, we're not just these, these robots in a uniform, um, which I think we're sort of falsely viewed at the same viewed as um, in the same way that police are. Um, we're human beings too. And, and I wanted to really show that human side, which you don't see. Um, unfortunately, all people generally see of paramedics is news reports about us doing heroic things um, because that's what makes the news. That's the sexy, exciting stuff. Um, where you're not hearing about, you know, the thousand times we attend patients in nursing homes with UTIs and the real trivial matters and the most ridiculous things like the person with the blocked nose or the person that's had a headache for six weeks and calls us at 3am. So I really wanted to put people in our shoes, um, give them a bit of perspective, um, but also have this book hopefully read by people like politicians and ambulance executives who are potentially out of touch with what's going on and, and think, okay, well, if the public's not going to listen, maybe it's us that needs to change because um, this is a real problem. Um, and yeah, in, in, by reading this book, they can put themselves back in our shoes, back what it was like on the road um, and, and hopefully be a bit of a catalyst for change to make the community safer as I'm, as I'm trying to achieve. Yes, I mean, it's astounding, isn't it? There, isn't it? There's a, the story of a guy who um, drove up to the hospital with his wife and wanted to park in the actual ambulance bay mm -hmm. and was told, no, you can't park in the ambulance bay, it's for ambulances. Yep. So didn't decide to park down the road, drove home yep. and called the ambulance. This sort of thing happens astounding. all the time. Yeah, all the time. It's um, things like that, things like the hospital's too busy, um, so I drove home and called an ambulance. I went to this hospital and it was too busy. Can you drive me to another hospital? Um, the GP has told me to drive to hospital. So I drove past the hospital, drove home, called an ambulance for you to drive me to hospital. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, as you mentioned before, a lot of people are entitled to free ambulances. So people people wouldn't abuse the system like this if, it, if there was consequence or it cost money. Um, and make no mistake, I'm all for universal healthcare and free access to healthcare. But unfortunately, when you, when you have that, um, it opens the system up to abuse, which is happening a lot. And as a consequence is, is leaving people vulnerable. Um, 
Yeah, so there's a lot of misconceptions out there, unfortunately, which, which I also wanted to highlight in that the ambulance helps you jump the queue at hospital or the ambulance gets you seen faster or we can fix you up at home and you don't even need to go to hospital at all. That's often not the case. We, we can't cure chronic health issues. We can't cure ongoing social issues um, and emergency issues. We have to take you to hospital for. So ultimately, yeah, that's, that's where you're going to end up. But there's, there's no special treatment by calling us. Um, and there's also, I think, a misconception out there that there's a lot more ambulances out there than there actually is which unfortunately with our current workload isn't the case. You know, people, people will live across the road from an ambulance station and say, why did you take so long to get here? You're across the road from us. Unfortunately, that's probably not where we're responding from. We're responding from the hospital that's 20 minutes away or the last scene we're at, which is 45 minutes away because we're so stretched out and spread thin. So yeah, I wanted to sort of um, uh, quash some of the misconceptions and the myths out there as well. So was the key motivation to get the message out there or had you always wanted wanted to write a book? And I say that because your previous career before you became a paramedic um, was, was, was as a journalist. You wrote for Top Gear magazine for a couple of years. So which came first? Yeah, that's correct. I was a, I was a journalist and a writer for Top Gear magazine, um, but the, the motivation definitely inspired the book. That wasn't always a goal. I, when I left journalism, I completely left it. I had no interest in writing or editing or anything anymore. I wanted to do a complete um, career 180. Um, and when you talk to any paramedic, every paramedic will say to you, I could write a book with all the ridiculous things I've seen. Um, I just happened to be the guy that did it. I just thought I probably actually could do it because I've got a writing background. I'm starting to build up this, um, this, this list of stories that is just ongoing and ongoing. I could turn them into some um, extended anecdotes, um, which is how it started. Just, just some scribbling down some anecdotes for each story, sent them to a friend, said, what do you think of this? Is there anything to it? If he had said it was rubbish, I would have, I would have stopped and never written the book at all. But, um, that was a former journalist as well. And he said, no, I think you're onto something here. So I continued with it and yeah, it turned into a 300 page book in the end. So take me back to your years in journalism. You then suddenly decide, oh, I'm going to become a paramedic. Where mm -hmm. in the world did that come from? That's a great question. I, don't, I still don't really know the answer myself. It was, it was more of a motivation to get out of journalism and get out of the magazine in industry than, <laughs> than to move into the healthcare industry. Um, you know, I was 21 years old working as a journalist, working for a, um, for a magazine in the early sort of 2010s. Um, which was a tricky time for magazines. Um, a lot were closing down. The advertising revenue was and re readership was going down. Um, and people all around me, my the same age as me, were being made redundant. And I was like, "What? What the hell's going on? Like, redundancies are meant to be for like factory workers in their sixties that have worked their whole life, not people who are twenty years old." Um, and me working in a men's magazine, they were hit particularly hard. So I sort of saw the writing on the wall that that I could be without a job here soon. Um, I need to start thinking about other options. Um, and working for Top Gear, I, I never actually really wanted to be a journalist. I was more about, I wanted to drive cars. That's why I worked for a car magazine. Um, so I thought, yeah, I, I need to think of a second career here in case I'm made redundant soon. And not long after um, I left Top Gear magazine, it closed, it folded. So I would have been without a job. So I just, I was basically Googling different careers and, and um, the career of a paramedic came up and I saw that they, 
um, work four days on, five days off. So that was a big tick because as a journalist, I was working six to seven days a week um, on a fixed salary. There's no overtime rates working as a journalist and, and working in the media, it's a, it's a tough industry. It's not an industry that generally will make you particularly rich. Um, so I thought, okay, if I'm going to work hard, maybe I'll do something that's helpful for people. And I, I just, I also thought I enjoyed going to uni last time. So around that time in the early 2010s, paramedic uni degrees were starting to become more prominent. Previously, you just learned to become a paramedic on the job, sort of like an apprenticeship. Um, yeah, but around that time, the uni, a few different unis were starting to bring out the degree. And I thought I had a good time at uni. Maybe I'll go back to uni and I'll do that. <laughs> but did you have an interest in, you know, health or anatomy not at all or... no i've no connection <laughs> no connection to it whatsoever it's not like i had a parent or any family members that were paramedics it wasn't like i had an epiphany when i was younger and i saw an ambulance save someone's life and thought that's my calling i've got to do that there was literally no connection at all i was just brainstorming different career ideas um and thought yeah i'll give that a go what's the worst that can happen i'm still young i'll try something else Okay, so let's talk about the German germ of the, the, the germination of the book. Mm-hmm. You said you started to build this series of anecdotes mm-hmm. that you knew that you could write about. <clears throat> did you did was that the start of it? And then you thought, oh, I could overlay or underpin this with, with this very serious message. Or did you think I have a message and this is the vehicle that I'm going to use? Yeah, I think it was the message was the first thing because the first thing I came up with was the title. You know, the, you called an ambulance for what? The big yelling, screaming, um, grab your attention title. Um, I always knew I didn't want to write a completely serious book, um, a serious memoir, because I couldn't face my my mates at work if that was what I put out there. It's, they'd just go, you're not a hero. We're all the same. What's this cringy rubbish that you're writing? I'm not a particularly serious person and I've got that, that Top Gear background. So I always knew it was going to be a funny book. Um, but I, the frustrations I was experiencing as a paramedic, I knew I could weave that in somewhere as well. So yeah, the title was the first thing um, that I came up with, then started just sort of writing out the anecdotes. Um, and then the arc was sort of the final thing that just tied it all together, that that narrative of, of the span of my career that culmin- and, you know, starts as a trainee going to a man with a blocked nose and culminates with basically the worst time we ever experienced being COVID-19, which all sort of fell into place naturally. Um, because right around the time I started seriously writing the book and fleshing out the anecdotes was in the in the throes of COVID-19 and lockdowns and this chaotic period. And so when you were writing the anecdotes, were you just writing them kind of in any order and then you kind of shuffled them into yeah. an order? Yeah, exactly. So, And that also helped with the issues, I guess the legal issues that we've faced with the book as well, um, because it's not even though it does follow an arc, all the jobs um, are very jumbled up. The the patients, uh, the genders are changed, the locations are changed. Although the stories are all still true, a lot of them are blended together to maintain confidentiality for patients, um, as well as my colleagues. The the characters in the book are all a blend of personalities, so so that everyone's yeah not able to be identified. So all the incidences are true. It's but you've you've successfully disguised them enough so that no one can be identified, and that's how you're able to tell these stories. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think um, patient confidential confidentiality is unfortunately a bit of a scapegoat and a bit of a get out of jail free card for people doing the wrong thing when calling the ambulance because that's something you can hide behind. Um, you know, when you look at a when you, when you watch a TV show like Border Security or RBT or something 
people's identities are shown because it's a criminal issue, not a health issue. But when something becomes a health issue, it's very difficult to sort of show it without consent, um, which is an issue faced by ambulance reality shows. Um, so that was another motivation of mine was to, was to show a bit of a different angle that you don't see on those reality shows as well, because they're very popular, but they also face issues of consent. They've also got a lot of dramatization, fancy, you know, dramatic music, flashy editing, um, so don't fully 100% represent what we do as well, I believe. So as you've mentioned, it's a series of stories, but they are linked with this narrative thread. And mm -hmm. one of the things that I was admiring, and I'm wondering whether you did this consciously or not, was that, I mean, apart from laugh out loud, very, very frequently mm -hmm. moments for me, um, when you come to each scene, there's this thing in writing known at, when you're writing scenes called in um, late out early mm -hmm. and where you enter the scene at the latest possible point just before the action and you get out early before you you know get into any mundane stuff mm -hmm. and you've done that so incredibly well was that something that just came naturally to you to you or were you conscious of where you needed to start each story no it's probably not um I don't think it is a conscious natural thing um that doesn't make sense. Um, a, con a conscious natural thing. Um, I think I think it wasn't a conscious effort to do that. I think it more did come naturally um, because I'm not, I wouldn't consider. I don't even consider myself a writer. It, it feels strange to to think of myself now as a writer. I'm just a guy who's written something. Um, my background. You know, I did a journalism degree, but there was only about a quarter of it was actually relevant to creative writing and journalism. Um, and most of what I learned came from learning from the guys I worked with at Top Gear magazine. So all freelance um, magazine writer type guys. So that's sort of where I developed my style for that. And I kind of think of the book as just really just a novel length Top Gear article. I've, I've always, it's it's kind of that classic Jeremy Clarkson um, style humor with the silly metaphors and comparisons to celebrities and silly jokes like that. So yeah, I'd say it was more of just a natural um, way of how the words came onto the page as, a, as opposed to a conscious um, effort to do it like that. So you're just naturally kind of funny and cheeky. You didn't have to go back and think, oh, I need to make this bit funnier here. No, well, I guess the the thing that was um, fortunate for me is all these things really happened. And, and one of the things we do as paramedics to, I guess, decompress, um, to debrief, to keep ourselves sane is we tell each other these stories at the end of every day when we get back to the station at the end of the shift um, so that we don't go, go mad and end up with high blood pressure and all sorts of problems like that. That's 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 how we, if we, you know, you probably heard the saying, if we don't laugh, we cry. And that comes from like soldiers, police, firemen, everyone. Um, so that's just naturally what we do. We, we reflect on the day, tell each other these anecdotes, um, and just look at the funny side of things. So yeah, I guess I was fortunate in in that all these things really happened. So it was actually quite easy just to put them on the page. I, I just had to remember them. Um, and yeah, by by writing down a list of each thing, um, of each job as it happened to at a later date, flesh it out as an anecdote was probably the best way I did that. Otherwise I would have forgotten so many stories that I would never would have been able to recall. So, I mean, I know that these stories actually happened, but I mean, there you have turns of phrases that are not necessarily part of the story. My favourite line in the whole thing <laughs> yep. was um, after a particularly harrowing incident that you never wanted to do again, it mm -hmm. was... And only people of a certain age will get this, um, like getting ice cream at the Coogee Bay Hotel. Some yep. things are ruined forever. <laughs> I was rolling on the floor 
<laughs> and for anyone who doesn't get that reference, Google ice cream at the Coogee Bay Hotel. <laughs> yeah, I guess if you're younger than 25, you probably you probably wouldn't get that one. Um, but I guess that jokes like that, and there's a lot of uh, other ones throughout the book as well. I guess I wanted to make it uniquely Australian as well. I wasn't trying to hide behind um, any sort of uh, literary devices or anything or, or try and be someone I'm not. Um, I know I'm not Ernest Hemingway and I'm not trying to be. So rather than try and hide my flaws, I, I would exploit them um, and just have this uniquely, because I am at the end of the day, I'm just a, a just a guy from a country town. Um, so I, I figured that's, that's the voice. I always knew I'd write it in my own voice. Um, and just the way it happened to come out was this uniquely Australian voice um, with, I guess, esoteric Australian jokes in a lot of ways. So it may not go so well in the international market, this book, but we'll see. Oh, I think it will. It's, <laughs> I think these stories are universal. They're amazing. So when did you think, okay, so you start writing these anecdotes, you show them to your mate. He says, yeah, there's something here. Mm -hmm. Can you take us through the steps to how did you get your break? How did you, you know, and how did you end up getting published by Pam McMillan? Yeah, that was, a, I guess, a bit of a fluke as well, just from what I've learned uh, recently being in the Pan Macmillan offices in Sydney recording the audiobook. Um, I spoke to the publisher there and he said, you're very lucky that we picked you out of the slush pile. Um, he said, that doesn't happen very often, um, which I'm sure you know, Valerie. Um, I'd, initially, I'd published to, a, uh, sorry, published, pitched to a couple of agents. Um, I, had, I had no idea what to do. You know, it had been 10 years since I'd worked in media. I'd never had any experience writing books or pitching books. Um, so I found a few agents online that I pitched to, got rejected, sort of got a dis bit disheartened a bit. And again, this was also in the middle of COVID. So it wasn't a great time we were going through. So kind of put the book on the back burner for a while. But you had finished the book a bit at this point. Had you finished it? No, I hadn't even finished the book when I pitched okay. it to Pan Macmillan. So, so okay. yeah, when it was on the back burner, occasionally I'd revisit it, add a bit more to the anecdotes here and there. And then I just thought one day, I just thought, bugger it. I'm going to just straight up blind pitch to a to a publisher um i fit the criteria that was on pan mcmillan's website some other um, publishers wanted a uh, full manuscript or half the manuscript um, which i hadn't gotten to at that stage so yeah blindly just through the submission portal online on pan mcmillan's website um i sent in a few chapters a pitch a synopsis whatever else they were asking for um yeah got a got a response uh a few weeks later a few might have even been a few months later it was actually while i was away on holidays with my now wife um, I was about to propose to her and, and got an email from Alex Lloyd, the publisher at Pan Macmillan, saying, I think there's something here. I'm pretty interested in it. Have you written the book? Have you finished it? Um, and I wrote back and said, oh, actually, I haven't yet. But um, if you'd like to read some more examples and sample chapters, um, I'll send them through. He did. He said, all right, I'll be really keen to read this when you finished it. So get back to me. So jumped right back onto the laptop. Um, so over the next few months, just punched out the rest of the chapters. Um, but also use, I think this is probably a good bit of advice for um, uh, hopeful writers out there. I used one of my former colleagues, Vince Jackson, who was our production editor at Top Gear to sub-edit my work and proofread it before pitching the final copy to Alex at Pan Macmillan. Um, so that's something I think is worthwhile investing is, yeah, have someone who's knows, who knows what they're doing, go through your words, chop out everything that's rubbish. Vince chopped out about 10,000 words out of the final manuscript before I sent it in. Um, and that was, yeah, that was about a year ago now. So it's, it's the whole publishing process um, from that final submission to Pan Macmillan to now has been about a year. Um, so they obviously liked it when I, when I finished it off and sent it in. 
So you submitted um, a few chapters and they expressed interest. They weren't like, oh, we're giving you a book deal based on these three chapters. They were, we'd like to see, we're interested, yeah. we'd like to see yeah. the whole thing. And when they got the whole thing, they were like, yeah, that this is a cracker, that that works. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so there was nothing set in stone from those uh, original chapters. There, there was no sign a contract here. We'll pay you this much to finish it. It was very much an informal, um, just a couple of emails saying, yeah, we'd be interested in, or I'd, Alex, personally, I'd be interested in reading the whole thing when you're done. Um, but that was enough to motivate me to yes. to to do a good job, um, not just to just scribble out the rest of it and send off anything. That was enough to motivate me to do a good job, thinking if I impress this guy, we might be onto something. And uh, here we are. Now, apart from getting a message out there, which you certainly have done in such a fantastic um, and not heavy-handed way, there, you mentioned that you know at the end of the shift, you you talk about that these these kinds of things to your colleagues, um, and I imagine that there's some that there's obviously benefit in some kind of debrief, debriefing process, but also in the act of writing this. What was the benefit of actually writing those stories, thinking them through, writing them in a in a you know, coherent and articulate way. What was the benefit to you personally of that process? Yeah, it's definitely, I think it's cathartic in, in um, it, it, it's a different way of getting out your frustrations, which the job causes, causes you sometimes. It's not, unfortunately, all unicorns and rainbows is another phrase I use in the book as people often think it is. Um, you do go home from a lot of shifts, just utterly exhausted, utterly frustrated that every job you've been to today has been, someone who's constipated, someone with a headache, someone with a toothache, you know, absolute nonsense. And you feel like I shouldn't have even gone to work today. There was, there was no point being there and being hungry all shift and being exhausted and being run off my feet when nothing I did was an emergency. So different people have different ways of, of releasing those frustrations, I guess. If some people go and do yoga, some people do martial arts. I, I found, I found, yeah, getting these stories, reliving them and getting them down on the page um, in the hopes that eventually they, they would get some sort of message out there. That was just another way yeah, of decompressing from the, the normal stresses of the job for me. Um, and I recommend other people do it as well. Fantastic. So now that you've got your taste for this, mm -hmm. and um, I, I have no doubt that people are going to be buying this book because, and not only just to read for themselves, but as gifts because it's just such a cracker. Um, what are your thoughts? You want to write something else? <laughs> Yeah, I guess I'd, I'd like to see how this one goes first to see how it's received. Um, it was a big weight off my shoulders when I finished it. When I got the publishing deal, um, it was it was almost like when you graduate from a uni degree and you go, I never want to study anything again or more specific, closer to my workplace when I fit, became an intensive care paramedic going, I never want to study anatomy or physio physiology again. I've just used so much brain power. I just want to break from it. Um, but yeah, I guess it has been over a year now since I wrote the final words on the page. Um, so I guess we'll, we'll, we'll see how the book's received. Um, you know, uh, they might even sack me for writing this book. So we'll, I, might, I might have to keep writing to keep some source of income. <laughs> it's, it, it may be a bit controversial, this book. It's, it's definitely not endorsed officially or anything like that. It's, it's all very unofficial, um, um, you know, because of, I guess, some of the controversial topics in it. So, yeah, I might, I might have to go back to being a writer full-time if I lose my job as a paramedic. Let's hope that doesn't happen, but, um, yeah. Or you um, might affect change in the industry. That Well, yeah, 
That's what I'm hoping. That's when I was in the in the deep in the depths of COVID, and you know, as I said, the the worst time ever it was to be a paramedic. That's that's all I was thinking of. I wasn't thinking about job security. I was thinking I need to get this message out there. I want politicians to read this. I want executives, health executives, to read this book, to put themselves in our shoes and and to to start making changes. Because I unfortunately I don't think society is going to change. I think it's us that needs to change um, for the for the welfare of paramedics and for the welfare of the community. So. Yeah, I've definitely got enough. I'm continually building up more stories every day, um, as I'm sure you realise. So there's definitely plenty of material for more books out there. It's It'll just be, yeah, finding, seeing what the repercussions of this one are. And then if I feel like writing a second one, uh, finding the motivation. But I've already got the title for the second one. The second one, the second one, she called an ambulance again. Instead of you called an ambulance for what? She called an ambulance again. So I just haven't got the stories written down yet. <laughs> that's astounding which and it obviously so true because so many of the anecdotes are people just repeatedly calling ambulance yeah absolutely yeah frequent flyers <laughs> we call them they're a, a real problem all right so I just want to come back to the actual writing process for mm -hmm. some people who you know who are thinking of writing something of this nature um as you say you wrote the anecdotes for you wrote the stories first and then you kind of arranged them mm -hmm. can you describe to me how you arrange them and I mean practically speaking did you have a bunch of post-it notes did you just you know wield an, a, a, a massive word document how did you kind of isolate the stories and then think what order should I, should I be putting them in yeah it really was just a massive word document of dot points of one word just to trigger my memory of each job of what it, what it was. Um, and then as I'd go through the writing process, I'd remember another job and another job. Sometimes I'd wake up in the middle of the night and remember a job. Oh, that one's great for the book. So I'd break open the laptop and my wife go, what the hell are you doing? Um, right, just writing down little notes um, to later flesh out into anecdotes. Um, so yeah, a lot of them were written. It wasn't written start to finish in a, in a linear structure of the book. It was definitely just written all over the place. Um, and then stuck together where everything fit, where everything everything flowed together um, to keep that that narrative structure, but also to keep everything yeah flowing nicely. And also with, when you were writing it for the first draft, were you thinking, I'm just going to spew it out and write what's in my brain or and then go back and change for privacy reasons, change it all so that no one could be identified later? Or were you doing that at the same time I was kind of doing it at the same time because I was very conscious of the fact um, that I would need to protect privacy of both uh, patients and and colleagues um, it's been done in other medical books out there probably the most notable one is um, this is going to hurt by Adam Kay the the famous doctor from the UK who had all the uh, wrote about issues with the NHS and being a doctor there that was kind of how he did it um so yeah as I was going along I would I would remember a job but I would remember that was a female patient so I'll change it to a male um that job was in Bankstown I'll change it to Cabramatta um I'll write a fake name for the patient I'll write a fake name for the partner um I'll base this colleague on another colleague who I've never worked with um so that's that's obviously the connection can't be drawn to me so it was all very conscious and deliberately done as I was writing it and also um when you were writing it were you did you have a word count in mind for each story not a precise word count as such but I kind of knew each chapter would sort of have two or three um extended anecdotes in it um just to keep it compressed keep the narrative flowing so they yeah generally ended up being around three to four thousand words per chapter um no end goal for a total uh, uh word count but just wanted to 
fill out as many of the stories I'd had written down in bullet points as possible, keeping the narrative structure, keeping it to two or three jobs per chapter, um, and and the th and keeping the three stage act as you say the the trainee paramedic act at the start, the qualified paramedic act in the middle, and the intensive care paramedic act at the end. Um, so yeah, it was just basically write out as many anecdotes as possible, um, as well as I could remember them while making them quite funny stick them all together where they fit, make them flow and just see what see what we end up with at the end. So it's kind of like, I guess, a Jackson Pollock painting, just throw everything on <laughs> on the canvas and just <laughs> hope it all sticks together. But obviously you made a conscious effort to make sure that, that it made sense and that it flowed really, really well. So what would your advice be, uh, finally, to um, your top three tips mm -hmm. to people who are thinking of writing a memoir of this nature? Yep. I think be unique. Um, don't be afraid to be unique. There's, as I said, there's so many medical memoirs out there that they're all serious. Um, and I think people are kind of over that. We, we know you save lives, save lives. We know you do long hours and all this sort of thing. So be different. That was my, my first, um, as I said, coming up with the title was the first thing I did. And that was what was going to differentiate it. It's not one man's journey of 20 years of compassion and on the front lines, this sort of thing. It's, you called an ambulance for what? Like, it's quite obvious when you look at the book that this is something different. This is going to be a funny book. This isn't a serious, um, you know, clinical medical memoir of, of a surgeon or something like that. So yeah, don't be afraid to um, work on an already established topic or area, but but take a different angle, be, be completely um, different to, to the norm, to what's out there. Um, second tip, I think, as I said before, invest in a sub-editor. Look at that as an investment. Um, don't think everything you write's amazing um, because they a good sub editor will chop out so much and change so much. So yeah, getting getting someone that fits your genre as well. So Vince, my sub editor, as I said, was a, a former um, Top Gear journalist, and before that he worked for Zoo Weekly. So very much <laughs> one of the great literary literary publications of all time. But but very much um, fit my genre and my style. So have a good sub editor. Um, and my third tip, what, what would be my third tip? Um, I guess just, hmm. I don't know. Cause I was, I was very lucky as I, as I said, I, I, I'm just a guy who just wrote a bunch of words on a page and, and, and a publisher took it. So I guess don't be afraid to use your own voice. Don't try and hide behind something as well. As I said, um, I know I'm not Hemingway. I'm not James Joyce. Um, I'm just a Bogan Aussie dude from a country town who wrote a 70,000 word book. Um, so yeah, don't, don't try and hide your flaws, exploit them, work with them um, and make that part of your own unique voice. I love that. You're a Bogan Aussie dude who's going to become a bestseller. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I Hopefully. think that's pretty good. Maybe, maybe they'll make a movie of it too. Let's see. <laughs> I have no doubt. All right. Th um, and on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Tim. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Valerie. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Tim Booth. It's it's a cracker of a of a book, and I think it's absolutely a fantastic one for Father's Day coming up as well. Now I'm going to leave you with a very easy and cute fun fact this week. Did you know that the word spud for potato actually comes from the word spud, as in S P U D D E S P U D D E, which was a type of small knife or dagger that was used to dig up potatoes. There you go.
Now you can all sleep. All right. Thanks for joining me this week. It's been great to hang out with you. Please do join us in the Facebook group. Uh, It's the Facebook listener community. Just go to Facebook and search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. It'd be great to have you in there. And of course, feel free to connect with me on social media. I'm at Valerie Koo. That's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And of course, the Writer Centre is over on Instagram at Writer's Centre AU. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter, at writercentercomau slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more.